material. And so he wanted to thank them. Like he wanted to genuinely say, look, I, I care about you. I appreciate everything you've done. You've been my partners for the past decade plus. Um, and we looked in Acts, like his first experience, going into the, to the church at Philippi, which he didn't really expect to find very much. But what he found um, was a group of women outside the city walls. Man, a lot's going. Man, look at that. That is like service with a smile. I haven't been treated this well since the last time I went to Shoney's. Because they were just grateful to have any customers, apparently. That's a joke. I haven't been to Shoney's in a long time. And if I had, you should worry about me. But either way, and so he found a group of women praying outside, and he was able to make an introduction and draw some conclusions because they were worshiping the one true God, but they had yet to hear about Jesus. And so it says that the God, you know, God of all creation opened their mind to the rest of the truth, and they met Jesus personally. And then 10-plus years later, he's writing this book, and we're going to talk about it a bit today, but he's in a familiar situation for them, like he's back in prison. And they saw him the first time that they met because he, he exercised a demon from a girl who was able to, to tell all things that were happening. She told the truth, but she did it for less than honorable means. And he, he chased the demon out, and then he got arrested and beat to a bloody pulp, as my grandmother would say. And so they saw that. It was a familiar setting. And so he's kind of writing this book from at least from where we sit for two purposes. Number one, just to give people that he loves, people that he cares about, partners, an update as to how things are going, where he is, what it looks like. But also in the midst of that update, he's able to convey like deep spiritual truth because that's what Paul does. He's a great multitasker, unlike most of us men. But he was good at it, and so he does that. And so last week, we talked about kind of his mission statement that we find in the early book, in the early part of, of the book, chapter 1, verses 9, starting there. And it says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And just this idea that he was praying for them, that their love would abound more and more, their love for God, which would create some, some things that would happen, the way that they pursued God, how they spoke of God, how they felt about God, all of those things. And so today, what he's going to start doing is trying to, is really giving an update as to where he is. He got past the, hey, how are you doing? Uh, this is what I want for you. This is kind of one of my purposes in writing the letter. But today he kind of gets to that other purpose. Like, I also want to tell you where I am and what's going on as a result of that. And kind of in the process, uh, continue to be kind of that patriarch, that spiritual father to you and convey some more truth. So we're going to pray and we're going to jump in. And I think all distractions are clear now, so we should be good. Yep, here we go. So let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for your word, God, that we can not just read and not just uh, admire, but God, we get to live in it. And so, Father, today as we, as we spend time just reading the words of Paul to a church that he loved very, very much, a book of encouragement, I pray that it does encourage us, but I pray that it reminds us of why we have been redeemed. Like, what is the point of all of this, and why are we here, and what do we get to do? Um, God, I pray that your spirit convicts. I pray that you continue to sanctify us, set us apart, make us look more like Jesus and the church that you desire us to be. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So starting in verse 12, we're going to read through kind of the first half of this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk through it a bit and read the second half. Chapter 1, verse 12. He said, I want you to know, brothers and brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, of, all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former pro proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So the first part of this, he kind of, whether he knows it or not, when we get to read it, we kind of look at it. He kind of gives like a physical update, like where he is, what is going on in the moment around him in kind of that physical realm. The second part that we'll look is still an update, but it's more like, and I'm not, this is not pop psychology, but it's more like what's going on in here, like what's really going on on the inside. But in the first part, we, we find out a little bit more. We find out that before reading this, we wouldn't have known necessarily, but Paul is back in prison. And what we know, he's, he's in prison in Rome. Uh, most likely that first imprisonment in Rome, he'll spend a little bit of time there, then he'll get released, and then he'll go back to prison in Rome, in which that will ultimately end in his death. But right now, he's there. And, and we don't know a ton of specifics about the nature of his arrest. We'll get a few clues in the second part of this text, uh, but we know that it wasn't good. Like, we know that in some ways it was a lot like The Princess Bride, like, great movie. I think my kids may watch that on our way to Kentucky today. And at one point, the Dread Pirate Roberts turns to Wesley, which unbeknownst to me, it actually has a T in his name because I wanted to make sure I got the quote right. But the Dread Pirate Roberts turns to Wesley and he says, uh, you know, uh, good night, Wesley, good work, sleep well, I'll most likely kill you tomorrow. This is kind of Paul's predicament. Now, granted, there's no Dread Pirate Roberts and he's not going to be groomed to take over for the Roman guard. Great movie, I'm telling you. You should watch it. There's love, there's action, there's rodents of unusual sizes. But anyway, side note, rabbit. Um, but he's kind of in that situation. Like, he's in not a great situation. Like, he's in prison to where kind of the verbiage most likely is, hey, um, glad you're here. Tomorrow we'll likely kill you. And he may have already seen it. We don't know, but he, he's not in a good place. But when he gives his update, it's really interesting. Like, that first part, that first chunk that we just read, when he gives his update, he, he doesn't speak about how bad it is. He doesn't speak about the looming danger that persists. And a lot like we talked about a few weeks ago during our, uh, our look in Acts about just kind of that brief survey and prayer, like during hardship, they didn't pray for God to take them out of the hardship. They prayed for boldness in the midst of the hardship so that they could do what they were called to do while they were there. And so similar situation here for Paul, like he's in prison, either shackled in someone's home, house arrest, or either shackled in a physical prison, but either way, he's there. And the stigma that is carried with prisoners at any time during that day was just not good. And so what it appears is the people of Philippi have sent encouragement to him. They love him. They've sent encouragement through a person, which we'll talk about in weeks to come. But either way, they were concerned. They were worried. And so he starts off here with his update, and he was like, I want you to know, like, hear me. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He could have started his update with, hey, boys and girls, the food here, it's really bad. I mean, it's so bad. And I think I may die tomorrow. And there's rats. There's really big rats, and it's not good. Like, he could have started with that, but instead, he knew their concern, and he opened with, I want you to know, what has happened here has been for the glory of God. It's been for the glory of God. It is really, and he's, he's stating these, these extra words that Paul normally wouldn't use, but he wants to get the point across to, like, it really has served to advance the gospel. And then he starts to flesh that out just a little bit. He says, uh, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard of the praetorium and to all the rest that my imprisonment is actually for Christ. Because back then he was probably put in prison for one of two charges. One would be sedition, which would be uh, inciting riots. And, and the Jewish people of Rome probably did that because they, they didn't want someone speaking against the, the Jewish ethos of, of worshiping the one true God, but not through this Jesus guy. And so they came up with a reason like, yeah, uh, sedition. He's causing riots. 
And the other one would have been like, he's a rabble rouser. I don't know what that word really means, but it's a fun word. I would love to use it a lot more. Rabble rouser. Just say it with me. One, two, three. Rabble rouser. Yeah, you said it terribly. Do it again. One, two, three. Rabble rouser. Isn't that a fun word? But either way, one of two charges. But when he's pointing out his circumstance, like his physical circumstance, he says, I want you to know, like me being in prison here has really served to advance the gospel. And now everyone around, they know why I'm here. They know I'm not here because I was a seditionist, that I was causing riots. They know that I'm not a rabble rouser. No, they know that I'm here for Christ. They know that I'm here for Christ. They know that I'm here on his behalf because I spoke of him. I've been teaching of him. I've been sharing of him. And that's why I'm in prison. And he says, the Romans know it. The brothers and sisters in Rome know it. Everyone knows it. From those who should to those who should not. They're all aware. And he said, this circumstance of mine, yes, it's bad. But, man, it served for the advancement, the furthering, the continuation, the walking forward of the gospel. And so he tells them, continuing on in verse 14, he says, And most of the brothers, having become more co becoming confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And he says, furthermore, the brothers and sisters here in Rome, they see that I'm here, and it's actually serving to advance the gospel. So do you know what it's made them do? It hasn't made them more fearful. It hasn't made them withdraw. It's actually made them more bold because they see that my imprisonment can advance the gospel so they're not scared anymore. He's like, yes. I'm in prison. Today I may live. Tomorrow I may die. But the gospel is moving forward. This is his update. Again, like we talked about last week, when they met him in the beginning over a decade ago, it was not like a normal meeting of a traveling teacher evangelist. Like it was out of the ordinary. Like he exercises a demon from a little girl. He gets beat, thrown in prison, and, and all of these things. And then even the, the ground shakes within the prison, and he leads a whole household to Jesus who shouldn't have believed in him, who had, who had wanted him dead. Like it was not normal. It was out of the ordinary. It was unusual, unique, and amazing. And in this case here, he's like, yeah, I'm in prison. But you got to know, it's good. I mean, it's not good, but it's good. It's good. And he's like, from all the people, everyone that hears, those who should follow, those who shouldn't, they know exactly why I'm here. Here's where I am. And then he gives a little bit of an update to things that are going on outside of the walls. And he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love and knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He says another result of my imprisonment is, is there are people on the outside. They're emboldened by this. They're emblazoned by this. Their faith has grown, and they're preaching the gospel, seeing what it's done in here and thinking about the power they can have out there. So they're doing it. He said they're doing it out of goodwill. He said now there are some others. There are some others that they want to cause me harm. And however that worked, we don't know exactly who they are, but we know one thing about them. They were actually preaching the gospel. They weren't doing, pulling a Galatians. They weren't adding to or taking away. They were apparently, in Paul's estimation, they were preaching the gospel. He said their, their desires are wrong. Uh, their, their reasoning for doing it is wrong, but their words are actually right. So he's like, I'm going to celebrate in that. I'm going to rejoice in that. Now, we could spend about four weeks right there, but we're not going to do that because that would be painful, and that would cause major deep conviction. But anyway, we'll let the Spirit of God do that. And so that's his first kind of an update, the physical, what's going on. I'm in prison. Yep. Yep, I'm here. You've seen me there before. I'm back again. Uh, but God's using it. And he's using it in big ways. He's using it here. He's taking it further. He's taking it outside. And he's taking it as far as you can imagine. The gospel, in his words, is advancing. Like, I love that word. 
because that's going to be like a battlefield tactical word, like advancement in, in this day means the front line is moving forward. The victory is getting closer, like we are marching down the field to where we need to be. He's like, that's what the gospel's doing, even though I'm in prison. And I could, at this point, say something very cliche and say not even a prison can hold the gospel. But I wouldn't say that, but I did. So that's where he is. That's his physical. He changes gears in the second part of 18 and then verse 19. And he says, yes, I will rejoice, verse 19. He says, for I know through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I am to, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is much more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he gave him the update as to what was going on around him in the physical, but in the the emotional inside of him, the things that were moving around the turmoil, it was a bit, a little bit different. And he starts off with just this idea. He's like, I know that through your prayers, through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Some translations are going to say salvation, not in the sense of being made right with God, but just in the sense of being taken from this place and delivered over to a better place. What we'll read as we continue here, if we just stopped at that verse, we might just think that he's saying, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to leave this place. But what he's actually saying in the context of the rest of this chunk of Scripture, he's like, either way, one way or the other, there are two options. I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be delivered. Those two options we'll talk about in just a second. And he says in verse 20, just kind of continuing on this thought, one of two ways, I will be delivered as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's like, I may get to live or I may die, but either way, I'm going to be delivered. Personally, I've seen this about three times in my life. Three men, same attitude, and it'll rock you to your core. To see, to see a man dying and to say one way or the other, it's going to be miraculous, and one way or the other, I'm going to be delivered. It's amazing. This was where Paul was internally. Because he had been told, like, look, you're in prison. Good job today. Sleep, take your rest, for tomorrow I'll likely kill you. Either way, one of two things. He gets to live or he gets to die, but he knows at the end of that, either way, is deliverance. Deliverance. He fleshes this out a little bit for us, uh, starting in verse 21. And this is like this, one of the, the chunkier passages in the book of Philippi that we know that we read. And most often we read it out of context, which is common with our bumper sticker verses. But he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. 
a lot of times people will look at this and they'll say, it's like a, you know, this typical the rock and the hard place kind of a thing. Here's the problem with that metaphor. Number one, it's wrong, and here's why it's wrong. Rock and a hard place are negative. They're not, they're not good. Paul's looking at his two options to live or to die, and he's like, I'm between a Philly cheesesteak and a double cheeseburger with bacon and avocado. Okay, both of those, whether you're, I don't care who you are, both of those are really good. Okay, whether you're keto or not, it doesn't matter. Like a Philly cheesesteak from Mike's, and I just heard they're moving, which breaks my heart, but that's okay. They're moving to our neighborhood, so I'm going to get fat, but I'll be happy. So Philly cheesesteak, good. You know, bacon double cheeseburger with avocado. Avocado is nature's mayonnaise. It's really good. Like those two things, they're both good. And Paul's like, I'm between this and this, and they're both awesome. It's not a rock and a hard place because a rock, bad, hard place, bad. But he's like, no, no, no. Either way, Philly cheesesteak or cheeseburger, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be delivered. I mean, that's deliverance right there. Like a Philly cheesesteak with boardwalk fries from Mike's, that's deliverance. But either way, like those are both really good. How in the world can Paul in a cell who is facing doom or imprisonment possibly say that? He said, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I am torn emotionally. And then he describes a little bit more in verse 23. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. If death is the option, his deliverance means that he ends up with Jesus. And like, let me just state it. To be with Jesus, regardless of current circumstance, no matter how good, no matter the health of your 401, it doesn't matter. Like, to be with Jesus, far better than it all. And he confesses that. He openly says it. Look, for me to die, which is one of my two choices right now, like, if, if I die, that means that I end up with Jesus. I will be with him forever. There is no end. There is no end in time. There is no end in goodness. There is no end. And that's the best it can get. He's like, that's one of my options. Maybe that's a Philly cheesesteak. Maybe that's a cheeseburger. I don't know, but either way, good. He says, so that's one option. And he says, but to remain in the flesh, to live, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, continue with you, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He says, I have these two things in front of me, to die, which means I will be with Christ, or to live, which means I get to serve you, I get to continually spiritually father you, and it will be for your good through Jesus. And he says, I know I must stay. I know I must stay. So not only, listen to the craziness of what Paul's saying, okay? Number one, he's in prison. Terrible situation. Terrible circumstance. Faced with the possibility of death for being there. The people that tossed him in there, they may have turned their back. Philippi hasn't, which is pretty amazing. But either way, not a great situation. And he never says it's bad. He never says it's horrible. He never says, um, I got to get out of here. Bake me a cake and include a file. He never says any of those things. That would take forever, by the way. Don't believe those movies that are in black and white. You can't get out of a jail cell with a file. Either way, it's noisy and it takes too long. So he's like, this is where I am. But he never says it's bad. And then the second thing he says is like, look, I've got two choices. One is the best possible choice that we will ever eternally encounter. And that is to be united with Jesus in perfection, in perfect unity, in perfect quality, in perfect quantity, in perfection. And he says, but I choose to stay. 
Like we talk about the uniqueness of the gospel, that it doesn't make sense according to our economy and the way that our brain works. These statements from Paul, they don't make sense either. They're not, they're not what we would naturally choose. They're not what we would naturally say. They're not the way that we would naturally respond. Do you know why? Because they're not natural. They're not normal. They're not the way that we were born into this world, but they are the way we should be reborn. The new self-attitude, the new identity attitude, the new kingdom attitude, the new perspective attitude. Either way, I'll be delivered. I have two great choices, and one, to be honest, is really a lot better, but I'm going to choose the second best for you, for your furtherment, for your advancement, for your maturation. Not normal. Not normal. I think when, when we read kind of this dual-purpose text of the book of Philippians, yes, we do want to hear Paul giving an update, and that's great, because he cared about the people of Philippi. Like, and, and further evidence of this is like the, the stigma attached to people in prison was, was bad. Like One of the punishments of prison and one of the cultural expectations was if you have a loved one that goes into prison, you cut ties. You ostracize them because they're now a prisoner. Part of the punishment is to be taken away from society physically, but also taken away from society relationally. You get rid of them. And so the people of Philippi, they were naturally worried about Paul, and they didn't know, and the stigma was there, and they were probably about, you know, a little at odds as to what to do. They were trying to encourage him, but they were like, well, he's a prisoner. But he's like, look, I want you to not worry. I want to update you. I want to tell you what's going on. But I also want to tell you the, the further idea of this update and the teaching, the dual nature of, but it's for the glory of God, and it's okay. It's for the glory of God, and it's okay. I think there, there are two giant lessons here uh, in this particular portion of the text before he kind of changes gears and gets very teachy in the next several sections. Um, I think the first is, is this, and we see it in Paul's words. We see it in the words that he didn't use, and we see it in his attitude. Our faithfulness to the mission is not determined by our circumstance. Our faithfulness to the mission is not determined by our circumstance. I know that's a, that's a big point. I'm going to say it again. Our faithfulness to the mission is not determined by our circumstance. If Paul's faithfulness to the mission was determined by his circumstance, his words would have been this. His words would have been very much like some that we've probably used when we think about being used by God. It would have been, look, um, I need you to figure out a way to get me out of here so that I may tell others about Jesus. Instead, Paul's like, no, 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 the mission goes wherever I go. The mission goes wherever I am. The mission exists however good or bad my day is. Like, you know, if, if Paul was living in the current time uh, and to take it just a step back and not even be so bad, on that day in which you get up and, and it's pouring down raining, you're driving to work, you get on 85, your tire goes flat, you have to get out and change it because you didn't pay for your AAA bill last month, and you get soaking wet, you make it to your first day at your new job late, and, and they're like, this can't happen again or you will be fired on that day, the mission's still there. It's not for tomorrow when all four of your tires work and it's sunny and you make it to work five minutes early, which is on time. The mission exists regardless of circumstance. And then even on the good days, like, again, all four tires, they blew up by themselves. They stay inflated. It's a miracle. Physics is amazing. You make it to work five minutes early on time. You do the best job ever. mission's there that day. It doesn't matter. Circumstance doesn't dictate doesn't dictate. Wherever we are, 
Number one, the gospel is wherever we are, we're going to trust in the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. God desires us to be there. Wherever we are, the mission is. Period. If we wait until things are optimal, we'll never say a word. We'll never, we'll never share our story. Because, like, in, in our estimation, things are never going to be optimal. It's like when you talk to new, you know, young married couples, they're like, we're going to have kids when we're ready. <laughs> That's funny. You're never ready. Okay, you're never, ever ready. Even when you have kids, you're not ready. But that's the beauty of it. It's chaos. From first cry to graduation, from what I understand, you're never ready. The gospel, look, it's not about us being ready. It's about us being an expectation that Jesus is going to take care of it. It's his mission, regardless of where we are. Like, he's already been there. He's already thought through it. He's already made the way. He's already made the plans. He's already supplanted the gospel in you. So wherever you are, wherever I am, the mission is, regardless of the quality of my day, or week, or month, or year. Our faithfulness to the mission is not determined by our circumstance. On our good day or our, our bad day, it doesn't matter. If we're trusting God with our, etern our eternity, we also have to trust him with our circumstance. If we're trusting God with our eternity, the finish line, so to speak, we also have to trust him with our circumstance. And we have to believe that, you know, and this is not a fatalistic view, but, you know, God, I trusted you to save me. I trust you uh, to make me ultimately right with God the Father by me confessing sin, you forgiving me of my sin only through you, only through Jesus. So I also need to trust you in the process, the whole, the whole deal, wherever I am, wherever I go, however I got there, however good or bad it is. The mission's still there. That's the first lesson. Here's the second lesson, and I think it informs the first. And here's our American struggle. We don't believe this, what I'm about to say. The gospel must be primary. The gospel must be primary. For those who believe and those who don't, it must be primary. If we are approaching church as a means to make me a morally better person, the gospel will not be primary. And the kingdom will falter. Not God's desire, not God's plan. But on my watch, that's what will happen. If we're approaching church to check a box to make me feel better about myself, the gospel will not be primary. We'll be religious. Jesus came to save religious people, by the way. If we are approaching church as a means to, to meet a husband or a wife, could God do that? Yes, he could. Um, but the gospel won't be primary. Because as soon as we meet said husband and wife, we'll probably check out. And so then we'll just be wayward. But, but... If we understand that the redeemed have been redeemed so that more people can be redeemed, it will change how we respond in adversity. It will change how often we look out for possibility and opportunity to share the gospel. It will change in how we think about God. It will change in what we're grateful for because the gospel must be primary. The kingdom of God does not grow without the gospel. And the gospel does not get conveyed without words. The gospel must be primary. It must be primary in your marriage. It must be primary in the way that you parent your children. It must be primary to the person's relationship that you have in the cubicle next to you. It must be primary in the relationship that you have with the person that lives across the street or across the fence. It doesn't matter. The gospel must be primary. Do you know what primary means? It means primary. It comes first. Everything needs to revolve around the glory of God through the gospel. The way you do your job, the way you love your spouse, the way you love your kids, all of those things, by primary, not just in compartments either. I talked to a guy last week, and he's writing a book right now on just an interesting topic of 
how to not compartmentalize your job and the gospel. Now, granted, for me, like, my job, yeah, it's a little easier. But the second career for me, like, I'll be honest, second career. And first career, like, I don't think I could have had a, a better first career when it came to having relationships with people and actually getting to speak to them about life in Jesus. Saw God work. Was I perfect? Nope. Did I miss opportunities? Yep. But did I see God do things? I did. Amazing confessions I got to hear. Just because I understood the job was a means. The place was a means. The circumstance, good or bad, they were a means. Paul, exact same thing right now. And I'm not putting myself on Paul's level or even on the same playing field, but Paul understood that he was in prison because people in prison needed to hear about Jesus. You're in your workplace because people in your workplace need to hear about Jesus. You live on your street, whatever number comes before it and whatever abbreviation comes after it because people need to hear about Jesus. You're a boss and you have employees because your employees need to hear about Jesus. You live in Greenville, South Carolina because Greenville, South Carolina needs to hear about Jesus. The old statistic when we planted Origins, 90% of people in 29601 were not found in a house of worship on Sunday morning. I guarantee you that number is larger now. I guarantee you it's larger. We're here in this city, in this place, with amazing beauty, amazing success, and apartments growing up all around where we gather on Sunday mornings because they need to hear about Jesus. And if it's primary to us as individuals and the family, they will. And God can use that to redeem. It must be primary. And I think it would be unfair of me to, to say it must be primary without giving you some steps in that. I think the first is see your circumstance as opportunity. See your circumstance as opportunity. Good, bad, somewhere in between, it doesn't matter. Wherever you are, the gospel needs to be heard, felt, experienced, 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 and people to have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to it where you are, regardless. And you say, I may get fired. I'll be honest with you, you may. Paul could have died. Now, I'm not, I'm not pulling the Bible card out on you, but I am. I am. Perspective's a big thing. And Americans, we struggle with it. Because the gospel's not primary to us. Church is good. Yeah, church is awesome. Yeah, man. Music, good. You know, coffee, good. Teaching, good. Or mediocre at best. But either way, the gospel must be primary. Your circumstance, view it as an opportunity. And then, understand this, and we talk about it a lot. Like, man, Understand your story needs to be told. If you are a follower of Christ, if you, if you have been made right with God through Jesus and Jesus only, uh, leaving your sin, choosing Jesus instead, to know God, to be known by God, to make God known, um, your story needs to be told. And your story needs to be heard. Those go hand in hand, believe it or not. Nobody can hear your story unless you tell it. And so it needs to be told. And we talk about that, like, oh, what was my life like before Jesus? How did he grab my attention? How did I respond? What's my life been like since? There's your story. And if you chose to follow Jesus and in whatever mystical, beautiful, biblical way that that occurred, the gospel rests in your story and you get to convey it. And you get to live out like this Acts 1-8 idea, be my witnesses. Just tell people of what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've experienced. That's your story. That's the gospel right there. Right there. And tell it in truth and honesty and integrity and be prepared to share it. That means uh, you might actually need to do a little bit of homework. Uh, if you have never shared your story or you've never written it down, maybe you need to start and just use that simple way. What was my life like before Jesus? How did he grab my attention? How did I respond? What's my life been like since? Period. Write it down. Write it down. 
Because we are being irresponsible and bad stewards of the story that God has given us as a means to convey the gospel if we're not prepared to share it. You hear me? I'll say that slower because sometimes I speak too fast. We are being irresponsible and bad stewards of the story that God has given us as a means to convey the gospel if we are not prepared to share it. Be prepared to share your story. Write it down. In our community groups, when they launch back in the fall, everybody in that community group will get to share their story again. <laughs> Does that make you anxious right now? That's okay. You can be there. You can do it. There will be dessert to help, and you got five minutes. Five minutes. Be prepared to share your story. Second to that, and maybe even first to that, some of these don't have order, but they have importance. Pray for boldness. Just like we talked about in the book of Acts, like in the midst of their terrible circumstances, they didn't pray, God, remove me from my circumstance. They said, God, where we are right now, give us boldness to continue to speak. Pray for boldness. Because human choice, if we're in a bad place, probably we're going to say, hey, get me out of here so that I may serve God. Instead of just saying, God, grant me boldness for where I am so that I may serve you now. Speak to the prisoners, speak to the guards, whomever they may be, whatever your circumstance may be. If your circumstance is an opportunity, pray for boldness in your circumstance. And then pray for opportunity. Pray for opportunity. Pray that God, like, magically, mysteriously, supernaturally would open that door. Like, there have been times in my life where I feel like it was T-ball. Like, T-ball. Like, because it does, like it does happen. I promise if you pray to a faithful God and you pray to him with faith that he will provide opportunities for you to share the gospel, there will be times where he will put it on the tee and he just says, just swing, just swing. And I'd love to say that every opportunity yielded and someone confessing Jesus as Lord in that moment, they didn't, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because I did what I was asked to do. And then we trust God with the rest. Pray for boldness. Pray for opportunity. And sometimes it will be a T-ball. Now, other times it will not. Other times it will be macrame. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds complex. It may be that. Pray for boldness. Pray for opportunity. And then number four, just, just be obedient in the moment. When God says speak, just, just speak. Speak. And you know, like, like I do, I want you to understand, like this, like Paul's words, Paul's response, they are incredibly supernatural. They are not normal. Us conveying the gospel to people, let me give it away. It's not normal. It is supernatural because we're not speaking of the physical. We're not speaking of physical deliverance. We are speaking of Jesus inhabiting someone so that they may be made right with God and cut off from their sin and propelled into glory. That is supernatural. That's not normal. And so if we're trusting God with changing people in a spiritual manner, then we need to trust God in the moment to do something supernatural with the words that we don't have. Because you may very well not have them, but God does. And he has you. So in that moment, like go back to the, the Jesus. Oh, in that moment when he, when he tells his disciples, like, go, make disciples, make followers of me, not church sitters, not morally good people, but followers of me. Through the gospel, then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to do, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you through it all. Trust that God will be with us through it all. Pray for opportunity, pray for boldness, and when he says speak, just speak. 
The gospel must be heard. The gospel must be spoken. The gospel must be responded to or people are doomed. The gospel must be primary. And then just, man, trust God in the process. Trust God in the process. Like, I can't save people. You can't save people. God can. But if we do our part, trusting in what he is going to do, let him do what he's going to do. The gospel must be primary, regardless of circumstance and regardless of outcome. That's not your job, not my job. But it is our job to understand that faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God and how beautiful are the feet of those who take it. Again, we can have pretty feet if we just take the gospel. I think for a lot of us, it, it starts... It starts with actually being grateful for what we have in Jesus. And maybe we haven't thought about it. Because to be honest, I, I do want to pose this question. If we understand the weight and the magnitude of the gospel that we get to live in, the Jesus that we get to trust in, how dare we not share it? And I'm speaking to me, like we. Like, how dare I not share it? To understand, like, and, and this one we don't talk about a whole lot. For some reason, we, we skip over it. We talk about being made right. But that being made right doesn't occur without forgiveness. You understand everything in opposition to God that you've ever done that Scripture will call sin, so will we. Everything that you've ever done and will do through Jesus, you're forgiven of that. Like forgiven. By grace. Not on your merit, but on the goodness of God. Like His goodness, not yours. You've been forgiven of that. That one facet of the gospel right there should make me say, I need to tell people what just happened. Because that ain't right. That ain't normal. For the gospel to be primary to us, we need to understand what we've gained through Jesus. The first being forgiveness. Like everything that was ever held against me by comparison to a holy, perfect God has been wiped away and will never be held against me again. Past, present, future. Crazy. All through Jesus. And then reconciliation. Through that forgiveness, we've actually been made right and known to God himself. Like we've talked about it through when we talked about prayer the past few weeks, that we actually get to talk to the God of all creation. He made everything with a word. He made it all. And through like this, this reconciliation, we actually get to go to him, speak to him freely without worry of condemnation. We can go to him with confidence and boldness. Because we have been forgiven and those things are no longer held against us, we can walk into the presence of God. We can actually know God through reconciliation. Not based on the things that I do or don't do, but based on the things that Jesus did that we couldn't reconcile. And then, as an extension of that, like access and relationship with, with God, like that's... Man, I'm not one to compare world religions and things like that, but, but when, we're, when we're out in the world's marketplace and we're talking to people who do not yet believe, like this, wow, relationship with God, like that, again, shouldn't happen. Shouldn't happen. But through Jesus it does. And that's not just a relationship in word or not just a relationship in theory, but it, it's a relationship in practice. I get to speak to God. I get to hear God through his word, through his spirit, through his people, and even through my circumstance, relationship. And then it's forever and always. The gospel makes no sense. 
We shouldn't have it. We were broken, terrible people at our best. And Jesus says, I'm not satisfied with that. I'll make you right. The story must be shared. It must be spoken of. The gospel must be primary. If you're not fluent in the gospel, become fluent in the gospel. If you don't know how to share the gospel, ask. We will help you. But you do, because you tell stories all the time. You know your story. Convey your story. Be fluent in the gospel. Be fluent in the gospel. Perspective is such an interesting thing. In some cases it is. We either have it or we don't. It's a yes or no kind of a thing. And the perspective we must have, we must have as people who want to see the kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the perspective we must have is this, that God changes everything. Everything. We have to not just, man, not just say it. We've got to believe it. And then we have to speak it. The city needs it. Your neighbors need it. Your children, they need it. Your spouses may need it. We must speak it. If you struggle with speaking the gospel, man, please reach out to leadership. Please reach out to one of your community group leaders um, and just say, I, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. Would you help? We call that a vital part of discipleship. And the answer will always be, yep, we will. When can we start? Let's, let's pray together. I want to encourage you to do this today. Like if, if you're sitting there and you're like, yep, I want that. I think it, it may start with confession of God. The gospel has not been primary in my life. And so I'm, I'm not telling you to say that. I'm, I'm just saying you can in this moment. If, if the gospel has not been primary, it's not been your motivator, it's not been the reason uh, for your breathing, your living, your, all of those things. Maybe in this moment, if you want it to be, maybe the first thing you say is, God, forgive me for the gospel not being primary in my life. Because it is not. And if you want it to be, and you sincerely want it to be, just tell God, God, I do. I want it to be primary. And then those same steps that we talked about, like pray for boldness. God, give me boldness to share. Give me opportunity to share. Make me obedient in the moment. And then let me trust you in the process. And before you, you say amen, I would encourage you to ask God through his spirit to remind you to seek this daily. Daily. Watch what God does. God, this faith family is so unique and so beautiful and so glorious. The ones that are here and the ones that are traveling this weekend, and God, I'm grateful. 
I'm grateful for the way that you've made us. I'm grateful for the way that you're making us. Father, we ask, provide for us boldness, opportunity, obedience, and trust as we seek to share the gospel with those around us. Make it truly primary for us, a, a thing that we thank you for on a regular basis. And Father, a thing that we trust you with on a daily basis. And Father, may you move, not for the glory of origins, but for the glory of yourself, for the growth of your kingdom, so that others may know. So that others may know. And so that others may know. Father, we desire what you desire. Confessionally, that, um, that none should perish. And that all should have everlasting life. Allow us, God, to be obedient to the point that we're willing to partner with you in that mission by speaking your good news to those who need to hear it, to those you tell us to share with, in the opportunities you provide, in the boldness you give, through your grace and your mercy, and through your son Jesus. Thank you, God, for a gospel that makes us right with you. Thank you for saving the unsavable, or so we would feel, for doing the impossible. Thank you for Jesus. We love you, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.